Hey everyone, good evening. You hear me okay? All right. All right. Welcome to the deep dive on Amazon S3 and Amazon Glacier Storage Management. I'm Sundar Parmesran, Director of Product Management at Amazon S3. Today, customers like you use Amazon S3 and Glacier to store vast amounts of your data. And you use it for everything from big data analytics, log file storage, media workloads, backup and recovery, or archive data. In this session, we'll talk about all the tools we have for you in S3 and in the AWS ecosystem to help you easily organize, understand, act, and secure your storage so you can get the most out of your data in S3 and Glacier. The agenda for today's session will start with an overview of all the storage management tools we have for you in S3 and in the AWS ecosystem. We'll look at capabilities you have to make it easy for you to classify your data, for example, using object tagging. Then we'll look at all the tools we have for you to get insights in how your data is being used, like storage class analysis or up-to-the-minute metrics. And then we'll look at all the options we have for you to act on those insights, like lifecycle policies or cross-region replication or the ability to set up default encryption policies on your data. And finally, we'll hear from our special guest, Paul Fisher from Alert Logic. And Paul will talk about how Alert Logic is using S3 and S3 storage management uh, to, to seamlessly scale their service and serve over 4,000 customers today with security services. And finally, we'll also leave some time at the end for questions. Uh, we do have a full, uh, full topics uh, and session going on today, so we will be available. If we don't get to all the questions here, we will be available after the session outside uh, to answer any questions we couldn't get to in the session. To walk you through these topics, I'd like to introduce Susan Chan, Senior Product Manager, Amazon S3. Hi, everyone. How are you doing? Well, thank you for coming. Um, this is a very exciting topic for me, and I'm hoping it's a very exciting topic for you as well. As Sundar mentioned, <clears throat> we have a full suite of storage management tools available for you when you store your data on AWS. What I wanted to start with is to show you that all of these are linked. We give you tools, various ways to organize your data, once you have organized your data, you have a suite of tools to help you monitor and analyze your data. So you can pick or choose what you need and only use the ones you need. And then also with that organization, you also have a bunch of tools that helps you act. So it's easy for you to set simple rules, and as your, data, as your amount of storage grow, as your data grow, storage management remain easy and simple for you. So you spend most of your time developing your business, developing your application, and leave all the undifferentiated heavy lifting for S3 and Amazon to do. Security is a top priority for us as well as for you. So underlying through all of these organizing, monitoring, and act is a full suite of security management tools as well. And we'll, we'll, I'll also go into deep into each of these as I go through the presentation. Let's start with how uh, you can organize your data. How many of you have been using S3 for more than a year? Majority of you. So I imagine you're familiar with organizing your data with buckets and prefix, yeah? 
So I'm not going to go into that. I assume that you already know how to do that. But what you have been telling me, what you've been telling uh, us is that your data has a lot more meaning than a single dimension of location. So what we have introduced is object storage, uh, object tagging, so you can tag your storage and identify your data based on the nature of your data. With object tags, you can control access, set lifecycle policies so to lower your costs and move storage around. You can monitor your storage by setting metrics. And you can also analyze how your, how your data is being used with S3 Analytics. So what exactly is object tags? Object tags are simply case-sensitive key-value pairs. They are mutable metadata on your object. Keys can be up to 128 characters, and value can be up to 256 characters. And here are some of the examples that are natures of the data that may be relevant to you already. You can put as many as 10 tags per object, so you can do a combination of these tags. There are a couple ways to put tags on your data. If you have existing objects, you can use the put tag request, and just to put the tags that are relevant uh, to you on your object without modifying the object at all. So all the rest of the metadata, the create data of the object, stays the same. If you have new data, you can just include tags as part of your put object request. So it is simply the same request, and there's no additional request that you need to make. Just one request, include the tag in the, the uh, parameters of your put object. Here's an example of managing access using tags. What you're seeing here is I'm granting get object requests to this user in my project bucket, only for the objects that are tagged project X. So what I'm effectively doing here is giving you very granular control on within the bucket what object this user get access to. So let's say when I have new objects or, or existing object that becomes irrelevant to project X, all I need to do is tag those objects with ob project X uh, tags, and this user will automatically get access to it. When this user move on to the next project, and I no longer want to give them access to Project X data, all I need to do is take this uh, permission clause away from his, uh, the user IAM policy, and that's it. They no longer get access to Project X data. So it's very, very simple. Think about how you, uh, you might apply uh, object tag uh, to your, how you organize your data. And, and tags, you, you hear a lot about tags uh, throughout the, uh, the presentation. So just kind of keep in mind um, as we go through the presentation here. So now that we've uh, briefly discussed how you would organize your data, let's take a look at what are the tools available for you to monitor and analyze your data. Customer have told us that they have business workflow or you know, some customers are uh, like you are running big data jobs on S3. 
in the beginning of your big data jobs, when you, you know, for example, when you're running a Hadoop query, the first thing it does, a lot of the times, it, you list everything in that prefix, or you list everything in the bucket. And as the amount of your data grow, what you're telling us is that you're spending more and more time listing the data. So we introduce S3 inventory for you for that, so you no longer have to list your data. S3 inventory gives you a readily available file of the object names as well as the corresponding metadata. You can subscribe, you can subscribe to your uh, 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 S3 inventory at the bucket or the prefix level. You can ask to get a report daily or weekly, and you tell us exactly where you'd like it delivered. So when you, you know, start your next big data job or start your weekly workflow, you can skip all that listing and just directly start with your S3 inventory file. You can also configure to get delivery notification through event notification. Once we deliver the inventory file, the last file that we, we, we write is the checksum file. So you can configure to get an event notification, either send you an SNS or SQS message, or trigger a Lambda function so your workflow can start that way. What's, what's more uh, to know is uh, S3 inventory costs half uh, of what the, uh, the synchronous list request costs. So think about uh, this is also a way to save time and save money. We have been actively taking your feedback, and over just the last month, we've introduced a few capability, uh, a few more uh, enhancements on S3 inventory. We added object-level encryption status, so you can easily see how your objects are encrypted on the server side. You can also now encrypt inventory report with SSE S3 or SSE KMS. We added a new output format. So previously, you can choose to uh, get the file in CSV, a flat file format. We've added ORC, a columnar format. So if you choose to query your, uh, your inventory, it's much faster that way. We also added integration with Amazon Athena, Redshift Spectrum, or any of your Hive tools. So I'll show a little bit uh, on how, uh, how you can uh, Query your data with uh, Athena in a little bit. Setting up S3 inventory is very, very easy. Everything goes, uh, a lot of the uh, tools that we'll be talking about is going to be under the management tab in your S3 console. Inventory has its own tab, and setting it up is actually just literally a single click on the console. So you can see that we out added a new output format, so you choose between CSV and ORC. Encryption status is one of the new optional fields, and there are a whole uh, selection of optional fields that you can choose, so you only choose the ones that are relevant to you. You also can specify your inventory encryption just by a radio button. Capital One is telling us that they're using S3 inventory report they look at the object encryption status for the compliance and daily reporting purpose. I'm also curious how you will use S3 inventory report. So if you have a chance later on, uh, later on after the uh, presentation or at the AWS booth, let us know. We'd love to hear. So we recently, 
we'll, we'll take question at the end. Uh, we recently added uh, querying capability with Hive tools. So just a quick example of how you can query your S3 inventory with Athena. All of these are in our documentation, so um, you, can, you can check out our documentation. But I'm just going to quickly walk through. The, there's, uh, you basically create a table. The only two things that you would change here in this kind of standard template uh, create table query is you name your inventory table, and you also point to the location where you've asked your, for your inventory to be delivered to. Those are the only two changes you, you'll need to change. So once you create your table, you can start writing a query using standard SQL. So here I'm looking at how much of uh, whether or not my uh, objects are encrypted. You can tell that some of them are not. Some of them are encrypted with SSE S3, and a few are encrypted with KMS. So with that, you can also quickly do a, uh, just a select uh, object name, and you can figure out which ones are not encrypted. And if you decide to do something with it, it's very, very easy. You can also quickly visualize your inventory data with QuickSight. So here you can see that I'm visualizing a couple days of my data on how, how many of my uh, objects are being encrypted and how they're being encrypted. So you know, I, I know many of you are probably very good at visualizing your data and getting value out of visual, visualization. So I encourage you to, you know, to uh, play with your inventory uh, with QuickSight and see what you get out of it. How many of you have wondered how much storage you have in your bucket? We actually publish this every day by default for you. It's under management metrics, and the storage metrics is free. It is published at the bucket level. It's updated daily. We even give you a graph with kind of a historical uh, trend. So you can see in your bucket how many objects there are and how much is being stored. This is part of CloudWatch metrics. So while we're talking about CloudWatch metrics, you can do so much more with CloudWatch metrics. You can use CloudWatch metrics to monitor performance and operations using, uh, use, with CloudWatch metrics, we deliver requests and bandwidth metrics uh, for you. And you can generate uh, metrics, you can define your metrics based on bucket, prefix, or tags. So you can align your metrics to your applications that are writing uh, to S3. These are one-minute CloudWatch metrics, so you, get the, you can depend on them for your operational, uh, operational use. And with CloudWatch metrics, you can set alarm so you can get a notification if the metrics exceed a, a level that you have predefined. So again, we, have, we publish many different kinds of metrics. There are nine request metrics, and there are uh, four uh, bandwidth metrics. So for example, you, you, you have an application, and you expect that you get 10 gigabyte of upload every day. And if, you're not, uh, if, if there's one day that you didn't see that 10 gigabyte uh, of uh, upload, you can set an alarm for that so that someone could look at it and see, where's my missing data? Or if there's a day where all of a sudden you get 20 gigabyte of upload while you're expecting 10, CloudWatch Alarm can, can help you uh, alert you for that as well. 
So moving on to the next topic, some of you know that uh, S3 has many different storage classes. We have storage classes that are for your hot active data, and we have other storage classes, like st standard infrequent access, as well as Glacier, for your colder infrequent access data. So when we, after we introduce some of these storage classes, one of the more frequently asked questions is, well, where, what data should, where should I put my data? What's right, which storage class is right for my data? So for that, we introduce storage class analysis. Storage class analysis gives you a daily report on which part of your bucket is being accessed and frequently used, and which part of your bucket may be cold and not frequently used. Storage class analysis, after you run it for about a month, we also gives you a recommendation for the right lifecycle policy, uh, right, uh, life policy recommendation so that you can set your lifecycle policy with a data-driven uh, analysis underneath it. You can, again, with object storage class analysis, you can set it up by the bucket, prefix, or tag. So you can specifically figure out the right lifecycle policy for your set of data. So this is, a, this is a view of what you get out of storage class analysis. You get a, basically uh, an analysis based on object age. You can see the top three boxes are for object age that are less than 60 days. And you can tell that based on our analysis uh, that those are frequently accessed. And the bottom two boxes are objects that are, uh, that are greater than 90 days old. And based, and based on our observation, we haven't seen that many retrieval. And so those are probably good if you wanted to think about putting them into standard infrequent access to lower your storage costs. You can also visualize storage class analysis with Amazon QuickSight now. Um, it's, it's fully integrated, so you can do your you know, uh, cutting and slicing uh, and visualize uh, and find out uh, what is right for your storage. If you're using other existing business uh, in intelligence tool that you prefer, you can also export storage class analysis and use it with you know, uh, any business intelligence uh, tools that you already use, so you don't have to switch tools. So moving on to the next topic, Many of you uh, may, need, uh, your, uh, may need to figure out, uh, track fine-grained access uh, tracking for your data. You may have compliance need that is driving this, or you may have auditing, auditing needs that you, you need to kind of go back and figure out what's, what, ha what has happened. AWS CloudTrail is this tool for you. AWS CloudTrail is the API logging tool for AWS. And S3 is integrated with it. With CloudTrail logs, it captures, for each request, it captures uh, you know, all the request-related uh, detail that you will need, such as who has made the request, what request was being made, what, what resource was, being, was affected, and kind of what the, what the request response was. So you have, you have very detailed uh, uh, record of what had happened and at what point. CloudTrail logs, you can 
configure to log at the object level, it is called S3 data event. You can also ask to log the bucket level operation. So when you, when you make changes to your bucket, you can uh, log those operations. They're called management events. You can also choose to log both. Um, you can also filter to log only the reads or only the writes. So it's very flexible. CloudTrail is also integrated with Amazon CloudWatch, CloudWatch event. So when you see something in the logs, you can programmatically take actions uh, to immediately do, make changes or improve security postures should you need, should you need those changes. CloudTrail logs are delivered uh, to CloudWatch uh, logging, so you can aggregate logs uh, within minutes, and they're delivered to CloudTrail events within seconds, so they're very instantaneous. You can very quickly start with CloudTrail logging through the S3 console. It is under uh, your bucket property, and it's just a, a really simple panel that you can enable uh, CloudTrail logging. And as you can see, you can choose between read or write, and you can specify where you would like uh, your logs to land. If you're already using CloudTrail, you can also configure that in your CloudTrail console. You can all, in the CloudTrail console, you can also specifically select that everything in your account, um, both existing bucket as well as any new buckets created in your account to have CloudTrail logging enabled by default. So as we mentioned, I mean, security underlies all of our story here. It is always top of mind for us. When customers think about uh, S3 security, Primarily, you're thinking of two things. First, is my data encrypted at rest? So for that, as you recall, we introduced object encryption status in S3 inventory. And the second is, who has, uh, are any of my uh, access permission open to the public? So for that, we have two methods. First is the AWS Trusted Advisor. There's a bucket permission check within AWS uh, Trusted Advisor, what it does, it actually lists out the, your buckets that have either public access or any authenticated ac uh, user access. If you have, and they list out the buckets that have those permissions. So you can go through and figure out whether or not you had intended for those to be publicly accessible. Using the same tech, oh, and uh, AWS Trusted Advisor is included in your business and enterprise level support. Using the same technology, we also recently uh, introduced the bucket permission check in the S3 console. This is available uh, to everyone, so if you have you know, your, your laptop on, uh, you're welcome to check it out. Here's what you will see. In your AWS console, when you list your bucket, we introduce a new column that says access. So for the ones with public access, we actually flag those for you. So you can view them in context. You're, you're looking at your S3, your S3 resource, looking at your S3 bucket, and if you see them uh, that they're listed as public, you can check it out and uh, go into bucket permission, and we even flag and specifically tell you whether or not it is the access policy, bucket access policy or the bucket policy that is providing that public access. So you can decide whether or not you need to change those.
So there are a, a lot of a big range of tools that helps you figure out what data you have and how they're being used. Let's move on to the last topic, which is tools that help you act on your data. Lifecycle policy is one of our, one of our most, um, tool, most popular tool. What it does, it actually it helps you lower your storage costs by letting you set very simple rules to automatically transition your storage to a lower cost storage class or to expire your storage. You can you, you can decide, uh, one of the, one of the uh, reason why you might transition your storage would be you know that your storage are, are, are getting cold or they're, they're not used after 90 days or not used after my project is done. So you might uh, set a rule to transition them into a lower cost storage class. Or if you don't know that, you may recall that you can now use uh, storage class analysis to figure out what is the right lifecycle policy for you, for your specific data. You can set lifecycle policy on a bucket, prefix, or tags, so you can have very, very granular control and set the policies that corresponds to your application or your workflow. Here's an example policy that you may set. For example, all my objects are starting on the S3 standard storage class. And after a while, after 30 days, I know that Access drops off. These are like videos that I'm I'm uh, sharing with uh, sharing with my my family, and after 30 days, hardly anybody watch them anymore. So I can move them uh, to a lower cost storage class, uh, like standard infrequent access. And after 90 days, I know that really hardly anyone, if anyone, is going to be uh, touching them, but I still want to keep them around. So. I can set another rule that says, you know, move all my objects that are older than 90 days into Amazon Glacier. So it's, it's a very, very flexible rule. It is also very simple uh, to manage. So the next tool that I want to discuss is uh, cross-region replication. There are many reasons why you might decide to replicate your data across regions. Some of you might have compliance requirement that requires you to store data hundreds of miles apart from each other. Others might have, you might have uh, latency sensitive applications, so you, wanna, you might wanna bring your data closer to your end user so they get uh, better performance. You might also have security requirements that, uh, so you wanted to create a remote copy that is, for example, locked into a different region and a different account uh, so you have a pristine second copy for, uh, for your backup. So cross-region replication uh, is the tool for that. It is automated uh, replication that is asynchronous across AWS regions. Let's take a look at how it works. Cross-region replication uh, is, is, uh, is a rule that you can set it up. You can set it up at the bucket or the prefix level. Once it is configured, every upload into the bucket are asynchronously replicated into the destination region that you specified. You can choose any AWS region as your target region. 
So that's a very important point because uh, when you choose your target region, you may consider your, what your requirements are, where maybe you, are, you wanted to bring your data closer to your end user. That might be one reason. Or if you have a compliance rule that uh, you need your data stored coast to coast, that's another reason. But whatever those reasons are, you get to choose which AWS region uh, you want it to replicate to. All the data are securely transferred uh, over a secure connection. And by default, we replicate the exact replica. That means the, the object, the object access policy, the tags, everything. So all the metadata is replicated exactly. So the creation date of the object uh, does not change. It, it is uh, replicated across region as well. So the replicated data would have the original create date of your source data. Lifecycle policy uh, actions are not replicated. What that means is that you can create independent lifecycle policy for your source data versus your destination data. So for example, your destination data is a copy that you, you, you know that is gonna be cold. You just, want it, you just want a second copy that is hardly ever used. You may consider using a lifecycle policy to just transition those into Glacier and so you have your uh, second copy stored at a very low cost of the Glacier cost. So many of you, might, uh, by default, might be thinking about, oh, cross-region replication, I have, I have it in, my, in the same account. Uh, so my, primary, uh, my region A and region B buckets are both owned by the same account. But some of you might consider using replication across account. And the reason is you, you might want additional protection for your sensitive data uh, to prevent you know, malicious or accidental delete. So again, by default, rep, uh, replication would, uh, uh, would replicate the same access policy uh, from your source. We, we recently introduced ownership override so that when you, uh, uh, when you set up your cross-region replication, you're asking S3 to replicate your data so that your destination data is owned by the destination account. So when those accounts are owned by two different uh, accounts, when your source and destination data are owned by two different accounts, what effectively you've done is that you're, you now have two completely independent stack of ownership for your objects. So we've built cross-region replication in a very, very flexible manner so you can set up the way that you needed it. We've already talked about ownership override to let you set up two independent copies of your data. We've also recently added support for replicating KMS encrypted objects. For those who use KMS, you might already know that KMS uh, keys are region specific. So what we're uh, giving you, uh, uh, the capability that cross-region replication gives you is that when you set up your cross-region replication, uh, you tell us what KMS key you want us to use in the destination region, and we replicate the data with that destination KMS key. So your objects are stored with two different uh, KMS key from, uh, between the source and your destination. You can choose any S3 storage class as your target. So if you have a mix of S3 storage class in your source 
and you think that your destination is going to be you know, a coder copy, you can choose to replicate everything into the standard infrequent storage uh, access class. Again, you can also choose any AWS store, uh, region as your target. You can also consider using uh, cross-region replication as bi-directional replication. And the way you do that is you set up cross-region replication on both your region A as well as cross-region replication policy in region B, and you replicate across to each other. And so everything that you write into uh, region A and region B are replicated to each other. And so you always have two, synch uh, two uh, synced up copies. And as you recall, we support independent lifecycle policy between your source and your destination. So you can set up cross-region replication with lifecycle policy or any way that uh, you, uh, according to your requirement. It is very flexible. I want to quickly uh, show you how to get started with cross-region replication. It is, again, under the, uh, in the S3 console, it is under the management tab, under replication, and we have a wizard that actually walks you through how to set this up. So the first pane is uh, sets up your source uh, bucket. You tell us whether or not you want everything that is written to that bucket to be replicated, or only things that are specific to, written to a specific prefix to be replicated. So you can choose between bucket level or prefix level replication. Here's also where you would uh, specify whether or not you want us to replicate objects that are encrypted with KMS uh, encryption. If you, you can uncheck that if you just want to uh, leave the KMS encrypted objects alone and not replicate it. And then going to the destination tab, we, uh, you can choose any uh, uh, buckets in any other, any other AWS regions. We also support uh, uh, cross-region replication set up across account now. So you enter both the account ID as well as the bucket name, and we'll set that up for you that way. And you enter in, for, if you're choosing uh, KMS replication, you would enter in the destination KMS master key right there. You can also enable ownership override with just a checkbox in the bottom there. So all this is very simple. If you're setting up cross-region replication across account, um, you would have to complete your setup uh, by logging into your destination account. And we've also made that easy by introducing a, a wizard here as well. So go to replication under more. There's a replicate objects so once you log into your destination account, you go into this uh, panel, and we have a wizard that helps you helps uh, set up, uh, make sure that your destination bucket uh, has, uh, you can easily enable versioning, which is required. And you, you can also set up the bucket policy or any KMS policy with a couple clicks. <coughs> Sorry. So the last tool that I wanted to walk through is uh, trigger-based workflow. We, uh, we, have, we offer event notification to help you set up a trigger-based workflow so you can simplify your processes and, uh, and respond to events in, in a timely manner. Event notification uh, is an automated process. You can set it up uh, for, uh, to, get a to trigger a notification when an object is put, copied, or deleted 
uh, out of your bucket. You can set up uh, event notification at the prefix level or by suffix. You, and as the result of the event notification, you can set it up to tr either trigger a workflow uh, as a message into SNS or a topic in SQS or trigger a Lambda function. So you can set up the, uh, you can trigger, uh, you know, the remainder of your workflow that way. So for example, you know, one of the example of event notification that we've heard is, uh, you know, you might have uh, photos that are being uploaded in your bucket. So you can set it up so that when a dot raw prefix uh, object get uploaded into your bucket, it will trigger a lambda, lambda function, so it will make a thumbnail that you needed, uh, of the size that you needed. So it's very easy that way. So many of you have told us that when, uh, for security, you had wanted to make sure that everything you store on S3 are encrypted at rest. Previously, uh, you, might have, you might used to have uh, policies that just reject put objects when it is not server, uh, when it doesn't have the encryption header. But what you've asked for is to make it easier. You don't want to actually reject uh, the object. A lot of the times, you actually just want that object to be encrypted uh, uh, upon upload. So we introduce default encryption. Default encryption automatically encrypts every object that is written into your S3 bucket. You can specify whether or not you want to encrypt with SSE S3 or SSE KMS keys. So it makes it very easy for you to meet your compliance or your auditing need. So you know that every object, regardless of which application or who's uploading to your bucket, that it will always be encrypted the way that you have specified. And for those who are looking for a security service, we also have Amazon Macy. Amazon Macy is a security service that automatically discover, classify, and protect sensitive data in AWS. The way it works is that it cracks open your objects uh, to look at sensitive, uh, to look for kind of sensitive uh, data using machine learning. It recognizes sensitive data such as personally identifiable information like social security number or other intellectual property information. And it provides you with dashboards and alerts to give you visibility on how the data is being moved or who's accessing it. So you can think about <coughs> using Amazon Macy if you wanted a, a full service uh, to watch over how your data is being used. So this is the full set of tools that you have to act on your storage. Next, I want to introduce Paul Fisher from Alert Logic to share with you how Alert Logic is using some of these tools in their architecture. Thank you, Susan. So I'm here to tell you how we have taken a lot of these tools and put them together into a storage solution that supports our products. And so what Alert Logic 
does, just briefly, is that we sell security service um, and security protection for cloud workloads. Everything from vulnerability assessment to uh, web application firewall to IDS and sort of the full span, including 24 by 7 SOC service that will take care of the detailed security analysis and escalate it to you. What I'm going to talk about then is how we support getting that done by using all of this technology. So some numbers that will be relevant to what we do. We have over 4,000 customers. All of it is subscription business. Uh, we ingest today uh, two petabytes per month from those customers. We have to retain that from anywhere from three months to seven years and that's a per customer selection based on what kind of subscription they want. We process average 1.2 million messages per second through the system. It peaks at roughly 3 million messages per second at times during the week, and that grows. The overall workload in terms of storage size grows at 110% per year. We add 110% to that storage total per year. That get, leads us to um, where we are today all the way to tens of petabytes in the next couple of uh, years. And so what we needed to do is build a solution that started in the data center and build a solution in AWS to solve, deliver this capability. And I'll tell you then how we scaled it uh, when, and when we get this to the end. So this is our system typical system diagram. On the uh, left-hand side, you see the green environments, which is just customer environments, and that's everything from AWS accounts to traditional data center workloads and even other cloud platforms. On the right-hand side, you have integrations with our partners, either third-party tools and or, third, or partners that add value-added security on top, where we provide them a direct flow of all of the data that we collect from the customer's environment. We flow it through to them so that they can do their own analysis on top of that. In the middle is our system, the simplest possible view of the subsystems that make up our system. The, what I'm going to drill into is one particular subsystem box, which is sort of ingestion, data access, and storage, and in fact, just talk about the data access service that's in the, you know, in the middle of that. So what did we need to accomplish with our solution? So we needed guaranteed sort of end-to-end -end integrity. So from the point at which we pick the data up out of a customer's environment, whether that's off of a host running on EC2 or an ECS uh, container, or it's data that we picked up out of an AWS service that we are bringing into our system for storage and analysis, we need to guarantee that what we picked up, what we store, what we process, and what we archive long-term is exactly the same data. And so we flow uh, a SHA-256 checksum all the way from collection through to the write in S3 as part of the, uh, the write request and then guarantee that it stays that way long term. We need encryption at rest, but what we need is encryption at rest on a per customer basis, and I'll get into the detail of that in a second. We needed to have per customer per data type, and we have multiple data types that we manage in our system, everything from IDS events to log data to network flow data to um, what we call observations, which are our conclusions on the security posture in the customer's environment, and then incidents in the whole sort of gambit of the data types. Each of these is managed as an independent data type. We need to manage the expiration policies of those 
independently. So for the log data, there's a retention the customer pays for. For the IDS data, it's a fixed thing, so it, it varies um, data type to data type. We also need to manage the storage class. So it's like Susan talked about having the ability to go from standard to infrequent access to Glacier. We want to manage this to optimize our cost and to still provide the data readily available to the customer for the entire retention period, as well as do multi-region availability. We want to be able to do per customer storage analysis um, and access analysis to be able to tell the business what is being used by customers and how they're using it. And then we want the economics of this solution to be inexpensive and fast and to scale infinitely. We sort of achieved most of that with uh, this implementation. So what do we use? We use object tagging, we use lifecycle expiration and storage tiering, we use cross-region replication, inventory, VPC endpoints, Glacier, expedited recall, we use KMS customer master keys and how we do the per customer per month uh, encryption. And then we use IAM cross count roles, which uh, I'll tell you about. It's a slightly different way than Susan described of using two different accounts and replicating the data across. We have a different way that we've arranged it that protects the data from any accidental deletion. So the core storage engine. What you see in the picture is a service called data access, very inventively, that accesses a series of buckets. So for each data type, there is a bucket per 950 customers, because there's limits on the lifecycle rules that I'll talk about in a minute. And we create additional buckets in that data type. That service then routes it to the right bucket and uses the hash prefix you know, trick to be able to get S3 performance. So for, for those of you who probably know, you can use a hash prefix. At, the way that S3 scales is each character in that hash prefix gets either automatically turned on based on access patterns or you make a request to the team. Each prefix gives you an additional bump in the performance of accessing and writing that data in that bucket. So it's this small five character prefix basically sets us up to have virtually unlimited scalability for you know, as many years as we can you know, care to run this experiment. And I'll show you some numbers at the end of where we got to just in our initial deployment. So the objects are written for us with two tags. The first tag is the customer identity, and the second tag is the date. This is the date of not when we wrote the data, it's the date of the data itself. So you think about a log message that got created in the customer's environment. There is a natural minted date that that message was created on that system. We want to transfer that date into our system and then manage the data that way. We collect data up to a month after it was minted because there are sometimes that there's delays in getting the data off those systems, transferring it into our system, analyzing, analyzing it. The issue is, is that we're also a long-term archiving solution for things like PCI compliance. So ultimately, we need to get all of the data, even if there was a delay, and we need to then manage it according to the date. So we use two simple tags. We use a, a KMS, um, customer master keys, one per data type. We generate for the, you know, for each customer, for each month, a data key out of those customer master keys, and then we automatically apply those data keys to do the encryption. 
We actually set that up so that, the, uh, so that the, we have keys in two different paired regions, which I'll show in just a second, so that we encrypt it in the primary region and we encrypt it with the uh, data key for the backup region. We write both of those in the primary region and then that gets replicated. What we set up in our environment is actually two different accounts, but we do it in a different way than Susan described. It's we put all of the data and all of the sort of metadata that we keep in DynamoDB and the KMS keys in one account. We call it the data account. And then we run all of our code, all of the service code that actually accesses this, implements this system in a separate account. We write IAM policies in the data account and grant only the ability to append and to read data. There's actually two different roles, one that allows read and one that allows the data write and append. And there are no delete permissions. That exist that are exercisable by any of our code. None of the code runs in the data account. The only thing that deletes data are lifecycle policies. That's because we cannot afford to have that data get lost by even an accident. So what we implement is the service and the data in separate accounts. We then do replication into two different regions spanning those two accounts in the two regions. So the data account spans the two regions, the, the code account or the service account spans the two regions. What you see in the picture here is a sort of a drill down of the pieces that run in the data account. In the primary region, we store in standard. We then tear down to infrequent access after one to three months, depending on data type. Um, in the secondary region, we're doing cross-region replication of that data, um, and it gets written with infrequent access because we don't actually expect to read it, although we want it to be available for a failover event, um, and then we drop it to Glacier fairly quickly after that, and that's the long-term archive. What we set the system up is to do bi-directional replication. So both of these regions are active, they're paired, and we assign customers to either of those regions. If we ever have a problem in one of the regions, we just redirect traffic to the data access service to the alternative region. It then accesses that customer's data in the alternative region in the buckets that it was replicated to. And in fact, if it ends up being, a, it ends up being more than a month old, it's gonna be in Glacier. So the service discovers it's in Glacier, issues expedited recall, returns to the caller to 503 come back later, caller comes back later, accesses the object because it's now been recalled and the system now continues to run. So our failover in this system is simply redirecting calls to the other region and just letting the process of issuing Glacier expedited recall and then accessing the recalled objects only for what was needed, what was interesting. So we don't do on mass recalls when we fail over. And remember, the first month is in infrequent access anyway. That's what the majority of our customers would access and in most circumstances, unless they're doing sort of you know, long-term reports for compliance. The interesting thing about this solution between the the copy in the primary region and the tiering there and the copy in the secondary region and the tiering there is that the total blended cost of this solution for us is 1.7 cents per gigabyte per month. What that turns out to be is roughly half the cost of what we paid to host that in a pair of data centers previously. 
So the solution, which is more robust, has more functionality, has more availability, has tiered storage management, that solution is half the cost of what we were running in our own data centers. So let me talk a little bit then about how we use those tags to manage expiration. Remember I said that customers pay for a certain amount of expiration based on what their use case is. If a customer is primarily focused on security, they may only care for us to keep stuff for three months and then we can roll it off and they can pay less and we can you know, not get the cost of keeping it longer. But some customers need it for a year, majority of our customers need it for a year for PCI requirements, and then some customers need it for up to seven years for, um, you know, for other compliance needs. What we do is we write very single lifecycle policies. Policies. We put 950 customers in each bucket. We write 950 lifecycle rules every month to be able to expire the tail end of each customer's, um, each customer's retention period by specifying their customer ID and the date. Remember, the date is just about the natural date of the object, not when it was written. So that it gets expired no matter what the you know, reorganization that we do, and I'll talk about that in a second. Very simple policy. It gets updated and actively managed by the system, and then we don't do anything for expiration, which is really nice. That runs in both um, regions, and so the backup region then runs that and then gets rid of it uh, you know, out of the glacier storage. We do some selective things for people that have very re uh, short retention periods. So for the storage class transition, it's equally you know, easy. We use the date tag and we roll off a particular month, the next month that needs to fall down to infrequent access in the primary region or from infrequent access to Glacier in the secondary region. We just specify a date tag value and we tell it what storage class to have it progress to. These basically get updated every month as we sort of roll forward in time, and it requires us only to just assert bucket policies on the buckets that we're actively managing for each data type. Nothing more interesting, no more effort that it took you know, to write simple policies and punch those out to a couple of API calls. It would have taken a long time to manage that stuff otherwise. So what else do we do? Because our data can get collected up to a month after it got created, because there could be delays in delivering it, because customers could have clocks that are set you know, off, what comes in to us isn't necessarily a sequence of data that is strictly in time order. So in that case, we still need to bundle that together as well as we can and get it written and then carried on to do the analytics in the system. But eventually what we need to do is optimize that storage. So what you see in the picture here is a very simple process where each bucket is set up to export inventory. That inventory will trigger an, X, an S3 put um, you know, a put notification which will run a lambda. The lambda will then analyze that uh, inventory report to pick off the month based on the tags of data that need to be reorganized. It will just put into an SQS queue a note about each one of those um, months of data for each customer. That gets pulled off by a lambda that just starts in parallel lambdas that do the, you know, that do the reorganization, and those just progress through pulling all of these smaller files into a larger file, 
um, organizing it in time sequence order, writing it back, and then from that point on, whenever we access the data from that time, we read the bundle file, which is way more efficient, costs one API call, and we can get, um, and because we can read the, the, the sort of table concepts at the beginning, we can go forward or back in time or start in the middle. So it ends up being very efficient from an S3 cost perspective. It gives us a much better way to then optimize basically the streaming that is what feeds the sort of batch analytics or search that uh, happens in our system. We also use the same inventory, same triggering events, same, you know, analysis of those things to put all of the put all of the information about those objects that are stored for the customer into uh, parquet files. Those parquet files are then used through Athena and QuickSight to then visualize and analyze what's going on with the customer. That only requires us to trigger inventory, process that same inventory that just got you know, run previously. We augment that with some other data. That's why we don't use the tools that Susan talked about um, because it, it makes a, a difference to us to integrate that stuff into um, you know, into the, the data, the columnar data storage, and then enables that kind of analysis on the back end. So, what happened after we implemented this thing uh, at the beginning of the year? Well, we transferred all the data for all of our customers from our physical data center into AWS, and during that exercise, um, because it was a lot of data, we were able to scale the rights of that over a hundred times our current workload. What that meant was we were effectively writing for the period of time that we were putting that in, what ends up being 140 petabytes per month, so more than a hundred times the workload I told you that we run uh, at the beginning. We were sustaining over 30,000 writes per second. That are, those are individual bundles of data that uh, were being written. During that period, from way down at the very beginning all the way up to 30,000, the latency at the 95th percentile stayed at 200 milliseconds without fail, and so the scalability that we saw out of S3 from the volume we run today to the fully scaled up uh, version was unaltered. That's all completely attributed to the sort of hash prefix and the partitioning that S3 does behind the, the covers to be able to then scale out the I.O. that gets put behind it. Read latency state, 125 milliseconds at the 95th percentile. And in fact, this wasn't the point, we didn't stop at this point because it was a bottleneck, because we couldn't make it, uh, because it wouldn't go higher. We just couldn't produce the workload to go faster. We just hadn't imagined that we would try to push it faster, and so we ran out of gas. Um, there is nothing in our validation that, that makes us believe that this is the end and expect it to go you know, many times larger than this afterwards. At this point, I'll let Sundar come up and uh, we'll recap. Thanks, Bob. Great to see how Hear me okay? I, you're not on. Go ahead. Let's see how alert logic is using S3 and S3 storage management capabilities. Uh, real quick recap of what you heard in this session. We talked about how you can organize your data using object tags, set up lifecycle policies, uh, or access control policies based on those tags. Talked about all the tools available to you to understand your data, some of the new capabilities in S3 inventory, how you can query that with Athena now. 
uh, talked about all the tools available to act on those insights, new CRR <coughs> capabilities for ownership override, default bucket encryption policies, or how you can set up uh, logging for all API level events with CloudTrail data events. If you want to know more, there's a lot more content we have for you. Here are some of the sessions that we recommend. Now, even if you're not pre-registered for these sessions, we do reserve 25% of the seats in these sessions for walk-ins. So if you can make it to these sessions, there's a good chance you'll have a seat for you. So take some time, note down, down some of these sessions. I want to say thank you. I'm going to leave that here. I'm going to say thank you. Uh, did mention we'll have time for questions. We're just about time, but Susan, myself, and Paul, and a few others will be available outside the room. If you have questions to answer any, any that you have, look for folks wearing a label that looks like this, and you can ask us questions on S3 or on Glacier. Thanks again. Thank, Thank you. you.